Greetings, this is Douglas Gimple, Senior Portfolio Specialist at Diamond Hill Capital Management, and this is Understanding Edge. On today's episode, we'll be providing a recap of 2019's equity markets. 2019 was witness to dramatic events and changes spanning economics, politics, and culture across the globe. We're going to sit down with Austin Howley, uh, Chief Investment Officer at Diamond Hill Capital Management and Manager of the Large Cap Strategy, Large Cap Concentrated Strategy, as well as the All Cap Strategy. Austin and I will discuss various events within the markets, um, as well as events outside of the markets and how those events have impacted the markets over the past year. And Austin will also give us a brief glimpse into his thoughts for 2020. Thank you and enjoy. Austin, thanks for joining me today for this recap of 2019 in the equity markets. Uh, we close the books on 2019. As you look back on the year, what are a few of the, the key takeaways? Well, when I look back on 2019, it really was an exceptional year for equity investors. Uh, if you look at just the S&P 500, uh, the market was up over 30% for the year. And that's in a year when earnings growth really disappointed. So investors got all of their return from multiple expansion. And if you had asked me coming into the year, uh, if that was a scenario that might unfold, I would have been very skeptical of that sort of result. So one of the key takeaways for me when I look at a year like 2019 is the importance of continuing to take a longer term perspective when we evaluate returns. And if you think back to 2018, a year when total returns were negative, mm -hmm. and look at the two years together, you get something a lot closer to what investors have historically thought of as kind of normal returns. And so I do think it's very, very important that we continue to take that long term perspective. A couple other things that were very interesting about 2019 when we look back. Uh, one, the amazing outperformance of the large cap growth stocks, and in particular, the large technology stocks. When you look at a company like Apple, which I think this morning just moved over $2 trillion, yeah. uh, it's just really remarkable. And that company was up almost 90% total return over the course of 2019. And when I talk about how amazing the outperformance of these companies uh, has been, I'm referring both to the rapid price gains in the shares, but also the fundamentals of these companies, which has continued to be really, really strong. When you look at a Google or a Facebook continuing to grow their revenues and earnings at, you know, three to four times what the overall market uh, has been growing, it, it's really remarkable. And, uh, you know, it, you do have to wonder how long it can continue to go on. Uh, but we'll see. The fundamentals are uh, very, very strong. And then finally, uh, you know, for value investors, I think the ongoing underperformance of value shares is another notable theme for 2019. And when I look back at 2019, there were actually a couple events that give me some hope uh, that value investing uh, may be on the, on the verge of making a comeback of sorts. And when I look back through the year, uh, you know, the WeWork IPO would be one notable example. Uh, also the Uber and Lyft IPOs, where investors in the public markets clearly uh, wanted more uh, emphasis on profitability rather than just growth for growth's sake. And I think that's a good sign uh, for the markets broadly and for value investors in particular. In addition, you had a couple periods during the year where value shares outperformed very significantly over a short period of time. And it leads me to believe that investors are maybe 
a little uneasy with the large disparities in valuations that have started to grow in the marketplace uh, and concerned that we may get a sharp reversal or more of a sustained reversal uh, at some point in the future. So looking back on 2019, uh, getting a little more granular, you know, what sectors had the most value uh, and what sectors were, were really difficult to find value? And it sounds like technology is going to be one of those ones to, that was hard to find value. Very hard. Uh, you know, we've been fortunate that we were early in identifying some of the large technology companies as having uh, very, very strong franchises that are almost impossible to compete with and were available at pretty attractive valuations if you go back to 2013, 14, 15, uh, even a little bit earlier in the case of Microsoft, uh, which we've owned for, you know, I think well over five years in the large cap strategy. And all of those companies have done extraordinarily well for us over time. Uh, however, as you point out, the valuations have moved up to levels that are a lot closer to our estimates of intrinsic value. We are still seeing that value compound at a very rapid rate because of the growth in revenues and earnings. But as valuation multiples move higher, it does become harder to justify uh, you know, some of the prices we see in the marketplace. And technology, in terms of new ideas, has been really, really tough for us to uh, you know, find areas of opportunity. When you look at the portfolios uh, broadly over the course of 2019, uh, turnover in terms of names was a little bit lower than it's been in the past. And that does reflect the fact that valuations are high and it's been harder to find new ideas. Uh, if you look across the portfolios, financials continues to be an area where we see value. Uh, it's one of the largest exposures across uh, our strategies. And we've continued to find new ideas within financials where we've been able to swap out of names, existing names, and into new names that we find more attractive. Just in the large cap portfolio, by way of example, Schwab and KKR would be two examples of high quality franchises that were available at really attractive prices at various points uh, throughout the year that we were able to add. Outside of financials, I can't really identify any, any themes in terms of sectors where we've had uh, much success in terms of finding new ideas. We're either constrained to some of the more value-oriented sectors where the mm -hmm. fundamentals haven't been quite as good, uh, or areas where the fundamentals are very good, but the prices and the valuations are, are quite high. So one of the things that, that went on last year uh, was this abrupt shift, and it was really early in 2019, abrupt shift from the Fed, where 2018, they had been raising rates four times. 2019, they put on a pause right after the, the, the mess that was the fourth quarter of 2018. Uh, and then by the middle of the year, they started lowering rates and, and easing and, and then increasing their balance sheet. So introducing the QE that wasn't QE, according to them, even though if it looks like QE and talks like QE and smells like QE, then it probably is QE. But so this this shift uh, was a considerable adjustment from what a lot of people, including the Fed, had projected. Um, how did this shift impact the equity markets? You know, we've talked uh, with Bill Zox about fixed income, but how did that impact the equity markets? Well, I think it had a meaningful impact on the equity markets. And I think you only need to go back to 2018, and in particular, fourth quarter of 2018, uh, where it was very obvious that investors had become very concerned about an economic slowdown in the United States and also globally. 
and it was leading to sharp sell-offs in any companies that were more economically sensitive, including uh, the financials that we owned in you know significant weights across a number of our portfolios. So as we saw the Fed pivot uh, mm-hmm. towards a more accommodative stance in terms of monetary policy, it had a big impact on the valuations of a, across a number of companies. But I think it's most easily seen within those financials that we uh, we've talked about already a couple times. Uh, if you look over the course of 2019, financials were one of the best performing sectors in the market, despite the fact that interest rates were down uh, 75 basis points during the year. And investors have kind of thought of uh, financials in a very simplified way as kind of a proxy for interest rates. But that dynamic shows you how concerned people were about a real economic slowdown in a credit cycle that might have impacted the earnings of the financials. Because once people got more optimistic about the economy broadly and the fact that we might not have a uh, imminent downturn in the economy, the the valuations on financials and a number of other cyclical companies uh, outperformed pretty significantly. And cyclicals broadly were one of the best performing sectors throughout 2019. I'll stay on fixed income for just a little bit longer. One of the other big events last year was, you know, it was the last week of August, essentially, the, the 210 curve inversion. Um, and everyone was talking about it. And, you know, it had, it had leaked into mainstream media where, um, you know, people were talking and doing kind of a Yield Curve 101 education session on, you know, the nightly news so people could understand. And everyone was talking, well, it predicts a recession, it predicts a recession. Um, not necessarily realizing that on average, historically, you're looking at about 21 months between inversion and the actual beginning of a recession. Um, what are your thoughts on the predictive nature of that kind of curve inversion? Is it something that you're thinking about into 2020, 2021, that maybe there is a recession on the horizon? Or do you just think at this point, with as involved the, as the Fed is in the marketplace, that you lose some of those call them historical predictive capabilities because there are so many other um, extraneous impacts to what's going on with the market. Well, the yield curve has historically been a very good predictor of downturns. You, as you point out, you have to be careful uh, in terms of how you define what it means to be right. inverted on the yield curve. But having said that, it, it has been a very good predictor, one of the best we have in terms of uh, economic activity and the odds of a recession occurring. Having said that, I do think we have to be aware that every downturn and every cycle is a little bit different. And clearly, when you look at the level of interest rates and the amount of activity of central banks around the globe, you have to question whether that yield curve signal is as meaningful as maybe it's been in the past. And there were, over the course of 2018, 2019, a couple Fed papers that tried to point this out and suggest that maybe because of the level of interest rates and, in particular, negative rates across Mm -hmm. many developed uh, nations across the globe, that maybe the uh, 210 was not as valuable a signal as it's been in past cycles. I think another very important point to make with with regards to the yield curve and uh, near-term economic activity as it relates to our philosophy is that it is one variable. And Mm -hmm. certainly, uh, we would like to see strong economic growth over the next five years, and that would be beneficial to a number of companies that we own. But... 
uh, you know, there are other variables that are very, very important uh, to us when we look at how we, you know, construct a portfolio. And so financials, again, coming back to financials, an area that is, is sensitive to interest rates and also the shape of the yield curve. And uh, when that yield curve inverted, a number of the financials that we own performed pretty poorly during that period of time. And we continue to feel very good about those companies. And part of that, again, relates to the long-term nature of what we're trying to do. And if you buy a Citigroup or a JP Morgan and you're paying eight, nine times earnings and have a view that the credit cycle is not going to be uh, you know, overly painful, uh, the next credit cycle we have, then you, know, you can live through a mild economic recession and earn very good returns for your clients uh, over a period of three, four, five years. And that's what we were banking on. And, you know, that's kind of what we've seen. Again, if you combine 2018, 2019 together, if you look point to point, a lot of those financials have done pretty well and performed at least as well as the marketplace. But you had periods where the market was very concerned about a near-term downturn, where they Mm -hmm. underperformed. And then you had periods where the Fed pivoted and people got a little more optimistic and those shares did extremely well. We try to look through those short-term periods of uh, extreme sentiment in the marketplace to have a long longer term perspective. And again, the valuation signal was far more valuable to us during those periods of time than, you know, the yield curve signal. So how have uh, how have the financials performed, we'll call it fourth quarter, really from, you know, the end of August where we had that inversion to now, by the end of the year, the, the spread between the two and 10 was at 35 basis points. So have we seen a, a rebound in financials in the fourth quarter of 2019? Yeah, a pretty sharp rebound across a number of those companies. And there'll be a mix depending on how sensitive uh, each of those companies is to both the uh, the credit cycle, the economic cycle, and also just interest rates more broadly. But we've seen Citigroup, uh, J.P. Morgan, a number of uh, other banks that have performed extraordinarily well. Charles mm-hmm. Schwab, a newer position, also has performed extraordinarily well over that period of time. And so if you look at the whole year, a number of those companies up 45 50% uh, for the year. And so really strong performance. And I think a lot of it, again, related to the fact that people have become more optimistic, more comfortable that the Fed really is, uh, you know, on top of things and willing to step in if we see signs of a downturn. So let's let's talk a little bit more broad macro for a minute. Um, You know, we're 10 years, 10 plus years removed from the last recession. Um, The way I'm looking at the markets right now is I'm thinking that, you know, we're doing everything we can. The Fed's doing everything it can globally. Central banks are doing whatever they can to stay out of recession. If we get to that point where we start to see, and I would say just one quarter of negative GDP, I think the markets freak out. Um, do we then become a self-fulfilling prophecy, do you think? That you know, once we see negative news the way uh, financial news is now, where everyone just piles in immediately and you see volatility like you saw in August and, and it gets exacerbated. Do you think that going forward from a macro standpoint, if we start to see weakening beyond this kind of muddling through that we've done over the last four or five years, do you think it starts to feed on itself? And how does that impact the markets that you're looking at? I think it's a very interesting question, and I'm not sure I have uh, any brilliant insights (laughs) here. Uh, What I would say is that we would welcome some more volatility in the marketplace. And I think in many ways, you know, having 
a mild recession. I, I've said often that for a number of the companies we own, it may take living through a mild recession before we get the types of valuations that we expect on these companies. Uh, people are still, we, we haven't lived through another cycle from the last cycle we had was the financial crisis. Right. And people tend to equate all future economic cycles with the last one they lived through. And I think we're still faced that uh, across a number of areas in the marketplace. If you look at the valuations recently, they did quite well in 2019, but broadly the valuations of more cyclical companies had gotten a pretty wide spreads relative to the fast growing and less cyclical companies. And so I think it might help us in a lot of ways to have some of that volatility. And we've been pretty cautious about making those trade-offs before we live through some actual data points of some economic pain. And so we've tried to hold on to the higher quality companies in the portfolio and try to bide our time and wait for those opportunities that we know will come eventually. Mm -hmm. It's not that the economic cycles disappeared. It still exists. And we will have a downturn at some point. And when it comes, we want to be ready to be able to step in and make some of those decisions to buy some companies that uh, suffer from the near-term volatility that's inevitable. And, and I think you're right. I think it probably is exacerbated by the fact that we've had so little volatility mm-hmm. over the last decade. Yeah, and I, and, and I think that you know we talk about, as Diamond Hill, we talk about long-term, but I, but I think for the listeners, you're really hearing it. Um, you know, I can say it as many times as I want, but when you're talking about evaluating companies and looking at it's going to take a while to get to the valuations that we're, we're looking for. Um, it just reinforces, you know, from my standpoint, that, that commitment to longer term. And I think that's, that's great to hear. Um, as investors look forward to 2020, um, you're going to start hearing more and more about the election. And, you know, we're in Ohio. So, you know, based on the last election cycle, we're going to be inundated with um, political advertisements and, and everything you can think of. Um, so given that we focus on that, that bottom-up fundamental of businesses, um, is there anything related to the, to the election, uh, and I know this is kind of a broad question, but that could have a material impact on, on the company earnings uh, as we think about, again, longer term, the next five years? Well, I think certainly looking back over the last four years and to the last election, it, it would be hard to sit here and say that, no, there's no way it's going to have an impact on earnings, because certainly it has. Uh, You know, the tax uh, cuts that were enacted had a meaningful impact on the earnings power of a number of companies uh, that we follow and that own across the portfolios. And so it is certainly possible. However, I often tell people I think it's easy to overestimate the impact uh, that a new president could have on the economic markets. There's just a number of variables that go into the equation, and the president's just one of them. And our system of checks and balances ensures that, uh, you know, we can't have too much change without some broader consensus uh, Mm -hmm. across the political landscape. What I would say is there are certainly a couple areas where I think you have to be at least uh, aware of the potential risks and the uncertainties that creep into uh, our estimates of earnings. So certainly healthcare, if you think mm-hmm. about uh, whether it be drug pricing or you know, at the more extreme end, a Medicare for all type plan that uh, Senator Warren has proposed, 
those could have a meaningful impact on the earnings power of a number of companies across healthcare. And so we've been pretty cautious, uh, you know, as we look at companies today to not get too specific about exactly what we think that right number number is for earnings over the next five years, because we know the range is pretty wide. And so we own Humana in the large cap strategy, uh, a managed care company. Mm-hmm. And we've analyzed very specifically the mix within Humana and how that might be affected if we move to Medicare for All. And we waited for a pretty attractive price on Humana before we were willing to wade in. And valuation does discount all these factors. Uh, but uh, again, we, we wanted a pretty wide margin of safety before we were willing to take on that risk. And I think for a number of the phar- pharmaceutical companies, that risk might be even higher because I think that is more of a bipartisan issue mm-hmm. that's likely to be an overhang you know, well into the future. Uh, and so... I think you do have to be aware of those issues uh, and do the trade-off between valuation, what's discounted in those shares, and the uncertainty and the key risks that come with some of these uh, political issues that may be on the table mm-hmm. as we move into uh, 2021. Yeah, I think if, if there's a regime change in the White House um, in November, I think this time, unlike any other will be the most impactful to the markets, I think, because you'll have such a, a dramatic shift from, I mean, depending on who it is from the Democratic Party, dramatic shift from where we are to where we could be heading, potentially. The Fed easing and, you know, the suppression of volatility that we saw last year was one of the big stories. The other big story was China and trade tensions with China. And at the time of this recording, you know, we're a day away from signing phase one, uh, which no one really has all the details on phase one, but it's, it seemed to be progress. Um, do you see a lot of impact in the companies that we own uh, through last year and through that volatility? You talked about some opportunistic uh, buying with a lot of that volatility that occurred in August, and that's really where things ramped up in the trade war. Um, you know, what kind of impact do we see on manufacturing uh, if we continue to see either escalation or still more of this kind of getting things done? Well, we certainly saw an impact across uh, certain companies in our portfolio, uh, especially some of the industrial companies that uh, have global portfolios and where China may be a meaningful source of demand uh, for some of their products. So two examples that come to mind would be Borg Warner, which we own across a number of portfolios, an auto parts company. Uh, Borg Warner, uh, a large percentage of its backlog and future growth come from China. And so we saw you know, some revisions downward in their estimates of future growth just because of uncertainty related to uh, growth in China and mm-hmm. in the trade relationship between China and the United States. In addition, uh, more broadly diversified industrials like Parker Hannafin saw you know, a real slowdown in new order growth during uh, the first half of 2019. And I think uh, much of it related to the tensions between uh, uh, China and the United States in terms of trade. And so uh, there can be a meaningful impact. And even beyond that direct impact that we see with companies like a Borg Warner or Parker Hannafin that have exposure to end markets in China, I think maybe the more meaningful impact overall on the U.S. economy and the global economy is just the uncertainty it creates uh, with CEOs mm-hmm. across the globe, uh, even if they're in you know fairly steady uh, businesses that don't have much exposure to China. There's just 
an increased level of concern, uh, you know, uh, if you talk to CEOs or management teams about the amount they want to invest uh, in an environment where they're not sure exactly what the rules will be in terms of global exchange uh, going forward. And so I think any progress we can make, uh, hopefully, knock on wood, we get tomorrow, you know, signing of this phase one deal, and we continue to make some constructive progress towards uh, more normalized relationships, economic relationships. And I, I think it'll be very, very beneficial if we can move in that direction. Uh, so oil prices last year rose meaningfully, um, but the energy sector was one of the worst performing sectors. You know, pretty straightforward question. Well, you know, why? Yeah, a really interesting year because obviously those energy companies, many of them are uh, their fundamentals are highly, highly correlated to the price of the underlying commodity. What happened is we've had a real shift in kind of the sources of power or the location of those uh, of power within the energy markets globally and the rapid growth of production in North America from shale companies has uh, kind of shifted uh, the regions around the world that have power in, in terms of global supply demand. And what we've seen is the competitive dynamics for a number of those companies in the United States has changed pretty meaningfully as well. And so North American shale production has become so meaningful at this point that we have a situation where whenever the oil price goes up above a certain level, the kind of fastest growing EMP companies in North America step on the gas, produce as much as they can, and it floods the market with uh, excess capacity, uh, excess supply, and the price falls back down. And so we're stuck in this loop where we're now meaningful enough in terms of production in North America that those companies are a bit constrained and they're not price takers anymore. They actually start to influence the price. The other thing that's happened is in key areas in North America, the growth in production has outstripped the available infrastructure. So we've had large price differentials for a number of the companies that we've owned historically, the large ENP companies in North America like Devon, like Cimerex, mm -hmm. uh, and their ability to transport uh, to a hub and get a price that's even close to the global price has been really impaired over the last year, year and a half. And I think those are largely temporary, those in infrastructure constraints, and we'll, mm -hmm. be, uh, we'll see those ease over time. But maybe a bigger issue is that those companies now compete in North America with a number of the majors, Exxon, Chevron, Conoco, who have become very large players in some of the North American shale markets. And those companies produce large amounts of free cash flow. Mm -hmm. They have huge amounts of inventory, and they can control their own destiny and grow as fast as they want as long as the returns are adequate, regardless of where the price moves. And if you look at a smaller company like a Simrax or a Devon, they really don't control their own destiny because they're constrained within their free cash flow production, which right. moves around quite a bit depending on where that oil price or natural gas price is. And so while I used to think, uh, and we used to think as an organization, that Simrex had real strategic value, it might be acquired uh, by an Exxon or Chevron, and it still might. I, it's a well-run company that we respect highly. I think the Chevrons, Exxons of the world are probably pretty content to just keep producing their own inventory as long as the returns are good and make life miserable for some of the mid-cap and small-cap companies and have them, you know, have to come 
to right. Chevron or Exxon uh, in more desperate times. And so those competitive dynamics have shifted, uh, you know, again, the power centers to a point where we actually think for the first time in over a decade that the majors, companies like Chevron, which is now the largest uh, energy position in large cap, has a slightly better strategic competitive position than some of the smaller companies like uh, a Cimerex. Which is a pretty significant shift. Indeed. So around this time last year, you said you were disappointed that we didn't protect on the downside as well as you would have liked during the fourth quarter. Now with the benefit of hindsight, how do you view that time period? You talked about it a little bit in the beginning, uh, and we're coming full circle, that you can look at 2018 without looking at the context of 2019. How has your viewpoint changed looking back? Yeah, when I look back at 2000, the fourth quarter of 2018, there were a couple days even there that are really <laughs> highlight what I, I've described as a somewhat sloppy market environment. It seemed to be driven uh, by you know, sentiment and fear more than anything else and not, not really fundamentals. And we were very active across uh, our portfolios. Bought a position in AIG, which was one of our strongest performers uh, throughout 2019. And so when I look back uh, over the entire period, that I think was a very attractive opportunity. Yeah. And in some ways, I wish we had you know maybe done more. But I definitely believe on balance, uh, it was a strong uh, uh, benefit for our portfolios as we move through 2019. Uh, and of course, you know, we never get them all right. And, you know, that was also a period of time where we added some to Simrex on some of those days. And that was not a good performer. But on balance, uh, if you look at the things we added to, I think, uh, strong contributors to portfolio performance throughout the course of 2019. So one of the things that uh, that I try to do when we do these podcasts is we try to, to get to know everybody in the firm a little bit. Um, so moving away from the markets, what's what's something about you that people may not know? Many people probably don't know or, you know, might be interested to learn, maybe not. Uh, I was, I've been a competitive athlete all my life. I was a competitive tennis player growing up. Uh, was the Ohio State doubles, doubles champion uh, in high school. Uh, played college tennis at Dartmouth. And one of my favorite things to do now is to play tennis with my kids. Uh, I play every week, kind of coaching my kids uh, in tennis as well as a number of other sports. Got my first elementary school basketball game coaching this weekend. Oh, very cool. And uh, that's a lot of my time today. You know, it's something I grew up with, uh, both individual but also team sports, and something I love to do with my kids and uh, something I hope that they're able to do throughout their lives, you know, participate in, you know, both team sports, but also tennis is a real passion of mine, something I grew up with. Well, Austin, thank you so much for joining me. I thought this was really great, uh, this recap of 2019, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Thanks, Doug. Thanks. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by Diamond Hill Capital Management. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. These opinions are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Reliance upon this information is at the sole discretion of the listener. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal.